Hey everybody, Brian Sexton. I want to tell you about my new book, People Buy From People. Ten powerful people lessons from the ultimate people person, my dad. My dad was the greatest encourager that I ever knew, and I want to tell you about him in this book, the things that my dad taught me, stories about his life, stories from my own life, and other relative connecting principles. You can go to Amazon.com and get it in paperback or Kindle. And now, here's another great episode of the Intentional Encourager podcast coming right now. Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. Yeah, a little different background. So this is supposed to be the professional background, but it's okay. If you're watching on video uh, on YouTube, you'll see the professional background here. It's all right. That's good. But I've got a Cincinnatian in the house. So I had to prominently display my Reds things, and I'm a lifelong Reds fan. My nasty boy's bobblehead in the background. But I had to do that because my guest is a Cincinnatian um, wearing an Ohio State shirt. She coaches women to quiet imposter syndrome. Stop playing small, speak their truths, believe they're worthy, live out loud. She is the CEO and president of Unlimited Leader LLC. She is a life coach and executive coach. I could go on for 20 minutes about her accomplishments, but why don't we just have her tell you what her accomplishments is? Lauren Ammon joins us on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Lauren, how are you today? Oh my goodness, Brian, I'm doing so well. And thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. You know, when we found each other on LinkedIn, you were wearing a Bengals sweatshirt. I thought, oh, he's in. We got this. We've got a connection. Um, Most people are not that excited to be talking to me. I will tell you that. (laughs) Well, maybe not so much about the Bengals, but, you know, they're through and through. I've been a Bengals fan my entire life living here in Cincinnati, and I will continue to be, even though it's very hard sometimes, I will do it. I will too. Be. And, and, and people that, that don't know, so I'm in West Virginia. This is technically the home market of the Cincinnati team. So every year we have the Reds caravan that comes through the area and the Bengals. This is technically their home market. Lauren, I'll share something with you. Yeah. So this past January, January 2020, before the pandemic hit, we had the Reds caravan that came through and, and um, a friend of mine asked me, he works for the local radio station that 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 is that broadcasts the Reds games. He said, hey, my kids have got a basketball game. Can you go over and, and do the broadcast for me? Everything will be set up. Just go do the broadcast because they broadcast live the Reds caravan. Like, uh, yeah, I can do that. So this past year, I got the chance to interview one of my childhood heroes, Eric Davis. I had my picture taken with Eric Davis. He was a Cincinnati Red in the 1980s. Eric the Red, he was nicknamed Great Reds Player. And I told my wife, I said, if you do not get a picture of Eric Davis and myself, don't bother coming home. (laughs) That's the thing, you know. Cincinnati has always had its its legacy one way or the other, and certainly the Reds have a different legacy than the Bengals, but 
you know, there are people around the country and I love, you know, whether they're in San Diego or they're in Seattle and they're like, hey, you know, I'm a Griffey fan. I, you know, I'm going to follow the Reds, you know, through and through for the rest of my life. And I just absolutely love that. You know, we certainly have our place in the world. And I love calling Cincinnati my home. You know who is a diehard Cincinnati Reds fan is Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Yeah, because Charlie Sheen's father grew up in Dayton, not yeah. far from Cincinnati. And and I, I I remember my mom and dad, and I write about it in my new book, People Buy From People. Um, my mom and dad took me to my first Reds game in 1977 in Riverfront Stadium. I'll mm-hmm. never forget it. And going to Riverfront for us was just like the, the biggest deal. Mm-hmm. Like it was – and so for my son and I, we tried to, we didn't get to go this year, obviously, because of the pandemic, they didn't have any fans, but we try to go down once a year to Great American Ballpark. And it's, and one of the highlights of my life was about 15 years ago when I met Joe Nuxall. That mm-hmm. was just, I was just like, I called my dad. I'm like, I just met Joe Nuxall. Joe Nuxall is a long time. He was the late longtime broadcaster of the Reds. Mm-hmm. And he was, he, he still holds the record. Mm-hmm. for being the youngest player to ever play in a major league game. He was 15 years old when he played it. And so the Reds just have that that pull in Cincinnati and in this region that that when you're a Reds fan, you're a Reds fan mm-hmm. for for life. Mm-hmm. For for all time. I should I forgive me, Lauren. I should have worn my red sweatshirt this morning. That's okay. Forgive me. So, but but it was a it was a great thrill to to meet Eric Davis. Marty Brenneman was there. I, yeah. I listened to Marty Brenneman forever, iconic Hall of Fame broadcaster. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Reds just have a, a special place here. But we could talk for hours about mm-hmm. our affinity for the Reds and Bang- well, affinity turned to misery for the Bengals. But <laughs> but I want to I want to talk to you about this year and how things have been for you this year. When when you think first of all, take me through how your year has been in coaching and, and developing leaders and things like that. How did it start, and how is it going so far? And we're recording this in the midst of COVID nineteen. So how has the year been for you, personally and professionally? Yeah, great question. So I started my business in January of twenty twenty, thinking, oh my goodness, this is a great year to start. Then ten weeks later. My kids were home um, from school, thinking they may only be there for a couple of weeks, and a couple of weeks turned into 175 days of being with my children uh, nonstop. And personally, I am extremely grateful that I went through my, my coaching certification last year in 2019. I started in March, ended in November. Mm-hmm. And I've said the entire year, I am so grateful to have gone through that training to have adjusted my mindset going into 2020. Personally, I will say it's been a roller coaster. I'll be fully candid in that respect in terms of, you know, being home with my children, wanting to provide them with as much mental stability as I possibly can while maintaining my own. Yep. And, you know, come September, they went back to school around Labor Day. uh, And then I really kind of picked up my business. So I made an intentional stop to focus on my children from about March till September in order to be there for them and ensure that, I'll I'll say one, they didn't necessarily feel neglected, but hey, mom's got something to do, you know, just go over here. 
um, but wanting them to feel secure and safe mentally, mentally, physically, emotionally. Um, and so when they went back to school, that's when I really picked up the business again. Well, routine is so important for, for kids. And I don't care how old your kids are. I have a 20 year old sophomore in college. Routine is so important. And, and the pandemic comes along and it, it just halts the routine. So you have a routine of got to get the kids to school, got to get them out the door. And then your routine is, okay, let me start with my day and do what I have to do for the business, things like that. And then I'll pick them up from school. And, and now all of a sudden the routine is they're home, I'm home, routine altered, and it's going to be altered for a while. What did you do internally to reset yourself and say, okay, this is the new normal temporarily. This is what I have to do. Because I think a lot of people that will listen to our conversation, Lauren, will say to themselves, I can totally relate. My routine was was radically altered. And it was radically impacted. And, and, and I, I'm still kind of figuring it out. So what did you do to kind of readjust yourself and your routine? Yeah. Well, one of the biggest adjustments was I'm one of those crazy people who likes to get up at 5 a.m. and work out. Uh, I belonged to a gym. That I work out in my mind at 5 a.m. Does that count? <laughs> Absolutely. Sure does. Um, so when the well, gym you're, went well, away. You're younger and more, you're young, you're much younger than I am. So, I mean, you know, I'm pushing 50 here and I, it's like, yeah, the spirit's willing, but the flesh is very weak. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my, my routine, that routine comes from being a swimmer. So I swam some from the age of five until I graduated college. So I had to get up in college at, you know, 5 a.m. to go to practice, jump in a cold pool for two hours, go to go to school, you know, and, and go back to the pool in the afternoon, right? So my life has been built on. Are you days. sure you're not a closet West Virginian? <laughs> I'm not. Because, be, well, uh, be, and, and I say that because, you know, shoes optional here in West <laughs> Virginia and, and you get up in the morning, you, you head over to the pool, and the first thing you do is kick your shoes off and you're, and you're barefoot for about 10 hours that day while you're swimming and doing other things like that. I just wondered if you were a closet West Virginian. That's all I was, that's all I was getting at. Well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I'm actually a Northern Kentuckian. I was born in Kentucky. Oh, so. <laughs> the suspense. No, but, but, but I, I love what you said there about the routine of, this was what I was used to. I was used to getting up in the morning and things like that. Um, has there, was there a point in time where you said the routine has got to change a little bit? I've got to tweak it a little bit. Otherwise, it, it's not going to work as efficiently for me. Because being around that, I was a high school baseball player. Mm -hmm. And I knew starting in January, I was going to have the same routine through, through, through late April, early May. And, and then in May, it just would, would stop, but it was kind of like it was flipping the switch. You, you still had to, you still were in that mindset and that mode. What did you do? I guess I want to kind of pivot here. What did you do a little bit differently to change that up a little bit? Well, it, I, I, I'll go back to when I graduated college, right? And, and kind of liken it to, to how this translates to COVID-19. When I graduated from college, there was this huge void. I was like, well, wait a minute. I, I've spent my whole life following this routine, you know, practice, eat, school, practice, eat, sleep. 
when I came out of college, it was kind of like, oh, what do I do now? Yeah, and that happens to a lot of college athletes. It's, yeah. It's, they're, they're so regimented in, in the, their routine. It's like, okay, nobody's going to tell me what to do for the next 12 hours in my day. Right. So I filled it with, you know, getting a job like an adult. Well, kind of, right? And then I, I took up marathon running. You know, to, I was an endurance swimmer. So, and then, you know, you put me in a pair of shoes or give me a suit and I'll swim for hours or run for hours, right? That's what I'm designed to do. And then I, I, I learned how to build running and a, another workout routine into my life. Well, come COVID-19, that again was shot to heck and back, right? And so what I did, back to your question in terms of adjusted, well, I didn't necessarily want to get up at 5 a.m. and work out in my garage or my basement. That's just not as uh, inviting as it is going to a gym and being there with other people. So kind of the the thing I noticed about COVID is, you know, this hit in March, April, May, right? So here in Cincinnati, that's a wonderful time to be outside. And so I adjusted my routine. So no longer was I getting up at 5 a.m., but I would work out kind of in the 10 to 11 time frame where the sun was getting just a little warmer, it was out, but then building it around my kids. Because at the time I was the one responsible for teaching them because the school, again, thought it was just gonna be for a couple of weeks. Hey, parents, we'll hand this over to you. It turned into three months. Um, so I built a routine of, hey, we'll do an hour of work in the morning. You can then have a break, you can eat. Then I get to do my routine or excuse me, I get to do my exercise and then we'll come back and do school later, right? There was no timeline. So back when I came out of college, it was like the same thing. I had to learn how to build that routine for myself and my kids just to maintain my sanity for full disclosure. <laughs> well, and, and I'm just jotting a couple of things down is that for you, I, I get the sense that routine was very important and it still is important. So, so let's kind of move that forward a little bit. How does someone who wants to build a routine and, and establish a routine, how do they go about crafting something that's functional that they can repeat? Because you mentioned swimming, you mentioned marathon running. A lot of that is process oriented. You, 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 for an endurance swimmer, it's, I have to get off the blocks the same time every time. And when I hit this level in the pool, I know what to do here. When I get to this point, I've got to kick into this technique or this process and get because when you look at when you look at competitive swimming, not everything is a sprint. There there is up and back in endurance. It's up and back, up and back, up and back. And so a lot of it to your point is like marathon running in the fact of when I get to this point, I have to call on this. I get to this point, I have to call on that. So when people want to build a routine or thinking about, okay, in 2021, I want to do something different. I want to build a different routine. What's the first thing that they can do to start to do that, to build that routine? It's a phenomenal question. And what, what came to my mind is the willingness to do so. You know, you talk about being intentional, right? So, so being intentional in terms of here are the things that I want to get done in a day. You know, whether I want to work out, uh, you know, one of my big things is drink more water. So working out, drinking more water, but also finding time for my business. So looking at those three things, look, saying to myself or anybody wanting to build a routine, what am I willing to spend my time on? And what do I want to do in order to find time for myself in the day? 
you know, I often get like, well, how do you build workouts into your day? First and foremost, it's because I want to, right? I want it to be very intentional and I want it to be a very important part of my day. So for me, the first step is willingness to want to build the routine. And then for me, I'm a big proponent of three. So what are the main three things that I want to get done in a day that I'm going to intentionally find time for and nothing's going to break my attention from that? What is the main question that you're getting from your your coaching clients this year? Because everybody has attacked this whole thing differently. Everybody has gone through different phases and parts of the pandemic. What are you hearing from your clients, that the question that they're asking you most often? That's a great question. I think I'm on a bit of a roll this morning with you are questions. you yeah. are and I love it. It's amazing. I, you know, it's 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 like it's like lightning in a bottle. Let's just <laughs> capture this and take it and, and roll with it. What what typically comes up is what or what has come up this year is how can I continue to move forward and find opportunity in the quote unquote, bad things that happen to me. So oftentimes I'm asked, how have you taken your energy and shifted from where you were in your life in terms of, part of my story is, right, finding, being angry and judgmental and just being so annoyed in the world. Yeah. To finding gratitude, peace and fulfillment regardless of what happens to me. Well, Lauren, let me, let me park there for just a second, because a lot of times in the, in the area that, that we are from and we live in, a lot of times years ago, our, our grandparents used to do this. And, I, and for those watching on, on video, I'm licking my finger and holding it in the air to kind of see which direction the wind blows. And a lot of people would base how they planted, how they did things, you know, especially on the farm and things like that by the direction of the wind. And I think a lot of people have reverted back to that this year. They've kind of, they've kind of licked their finger and stuck it in the air and going, I've got to see which way the wind's blowing because it seems to be moving by the minute Mm -hmm. and by the hour and, and uncertainty is unsettling, right? And a lot of people, do not function well in uncertainty. And so for you, how have you coached your clients this year to have that sense of certainty in the midst of uncertainty? Yeah, and I think it's all about knowing that they have control over how they respond. You know, that's one of the biggest learning ahas within my clients is that, oh my goodness, I actually have control over more than what I think I do. Sure, no one, you know, we say no one could have quote unquote predicted COVID-19, right? Whatever you think about that, whatever, it happened. We certainly can't control when, you know, the states shut everything down or we couldn't see our families, extended families. But, you know, the biggest aha for my clients is, oh, my goodness, I actually have more control over how I go about moving forward. And so teaching them that, yes, you can find certainty in uncertainty. And that starts with you. 
And it starts with, hey, I'll give an example for myself. Okay, my kids came home wildly uncertain as to how I was going to teach them. But in the moments that I was starting to feel frustration to say, okay, I have complete control over what's going to happen. How can I shift my energy to find peace in this moment so that they, their lives aren't filled with stress over my stress. Yeah. And so a lot of my clients talk about finding and being able to access more control, knowing that it starts from within. Hey everybody, Brian Sexton here. I want to tell you about our sponsor, SEO National. SEO stands for Search Engine Optimization. Now what's that, you might say? Well, Search Engine Optimization helps you show up higher on search engines in front of paying customers for words that you as a business owner can monetize. What a great concept. SEO National is owned by my good buddy, Damon Burton, who's been a guest here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Not only has Damon and his team worked with businesses of all sizes, from e-commerce startups to NBA teams and Shark Tank featured businesses, but more importantly, Damon and his team are about transparency, trust, and providing lifetime value. So much so that he still has his first customers after opening SEO National 14 years ago. Let me give you some intentional encouragement and call Damon and his team today at 855-736-6285 or go to www.seonational.com and get a free quote. Well, and that's important to understand, Lauren, because again, the thing about it is there are, there are the old saying, misery loves company. People, people thrive a lot of times in the midst of chaos and, and they want to bring everybody into their, to their chaos instead of just saying, okay, um, I'm going it, to, it, it, it's funny. I was telling my, we were telling our son this not so long ago. You have to control what you can control because everybody, and especially in the social media age, People want to go on social media platforms and rant and do this and that. And it's like, okay, wait a minute. The best thing you can do is just not say anything at all. Just, just, and, and, and I said this a little while ago too. The best, in, the best decisions are never made in fear. Mm -hmm. It's always, yes, this is a, a crap storm around me, but I'm going to be resolute and do what I need to do. And I love what you said there about having control over our responses, because sometimes what, what society would tell us is, well, just go ahead and rant on social media, go ahead and vent. It's okay. You know, you, you're, you're, you have the right to do that. Yes, you do. But you also have to own what you say. Mm -hmm. And when it, when, when the reaction doesn't go the way you think it should go, you have to be man enough or woman enough to say, Oh, you know what? I had a weak moment. I shouldn't have said that or just don't say anything at all and just internalize it and go take a deep breath and go, okay, it'll get better. Yeah. What I often talk about with clients in that respect is that, that moment of the trigger, right? So specifically on social media, when you read something and your initial reaction is to react and rant, you know, a lot of the work that I do with clients is to help them realize that something inside them was triggered, that whatever they read or whatever came up for them, they 
I always put it this way, and this is kind of a hard concept to, to kind of come to at first, is they allowed a button that exists for them to be pushed. Yep. And that's 100%. often that's often the reaction of, well, now I'm going to rant because a button, you know, but having consciousness around, oh, wait a minute, that person didn't make me feel or react a certain way. Yeah. I allowed something deep inside of me to be triggered in that moment. And that's what pushed me to want to react. Well, here's what I hear. I have to rant. I have to post. I have, no, you don't. You don't have to do any. You don't. You, the only thing you have to do is pay taxes and breathe. And, and, and you know, go to the bathroom. That's it. Right. Yeah, that, that's it. So, hey, let's pivot here real quick and, and yeah. let's dive into your story. You mentioned yeah. a, a couple of minutes ago you were a competitive swimmer, ran marathons, things like that. Take me as far back as you want to take me from point A to today. And tell your story, um, because it's a pretty powerful story that you have. And that's why I wanted to have you on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. So I will just start with, yes, I was a competitive swimmer from the age of five until the age of 22. So as you can imagine, this competitive nature was built into, I'll put it this way. I thought this competitive nature was built into my DNA. So I graduated college with a political science degree. I had full intentions of going to law school. I took the LSAT and thought, oh, hell no, this is not the life I want to live. So I took some time to figure out what the heck I wanted to do. One day I was sitting in the kitchen with my mom and she said, well, you love law. You love learning about the law. Why not look into HR? You know, you could, you could utilize the law from that standpoint. So I went to go get my master's degree from the University of Cincinnati. Um, and came out and got uh, was lucky enough to have found a job right away. And what was it about? What was it about? I didn't mean to interrupt you there, but what no, was no. it about law school that you just you just said, "No, nah, I can't do it"? Because you know, again, everybody, you know, and and you think about, okay, I'm going to be an attorney and things like that, and law school and and going on, and and I have a master's degree as well too. But what was it about not going to law school for you that was just like, that? that's the right thing for me to do? Well, when I took the LSAT, I don't know for anybody who's taken it, it, it's a different kind of test. And they test really kind of how your brain works and how you can kind of devise, uh, pull information. My brain just did not work the way that the LSAT is designed. I'd get and one I, question into the LSAT and they'd be like, no, just go home. Just, just go home. <laughs> That's basically what they told me after I took the LSAT. No, not you. No, you're way smarter than I am. I mean, your posts on LinkedIn are just, they're brilliant. You're way smarter than I am. I can't believe they would say that to you. I don't know that that's the case, but um, I just took it and, you know, they basically said, no, no, this isn't for you. Um, so I went and got my master's degree and I came out and I got into HR. And what's really funny is that HR law and employment law is my least favorite thing on the planet. I, it just does not excite me in the least bit. Um, you don't say. That's, yeah. that, 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 that just sounds like it would be the epitome of exciting. And, and right? you're saying it, that it's not exciting. No, it's not. So I got into HR and you know, part of my story is that within about a couple of months, I thought, you know, I just don't necessarily feel comfortable. And I thought to myself, it's probably just, you know, first time real world jitters you know, it, it is what it is. Then 2008 hit. So I got into the job market in 2007, 2008 hit. And in HR for about a year, 
most of my time was spent either letting people go, communicating how reduction in forces work, figuring out how furloughs work, and basically impacting people's lives in a way that was really challenging, right? You know, it's really hard not to take that personally in the HR world because you're affecting someone's livelihood. So fast forward, you know, I'm still working in HR and I'm still uncomfortable. Let me, Maybe. let me stop there for, let me, let me stop there. Cause I want to pull out a little more conversation there. Yeah. You're having to do these things and the, the, the HR side of you says it's a business decision. We have to do this. You're standing in front of people. You're about to deliver this news of, Hey, your, your job's ended. Your life's about to be affected. How did you handle that emotionally? What did that do to you internally? Because I, I know people that have been in similar situations and they've said to me, you know, Brian, it was, it was the worst thing I ever had to do. It was, I was miserable. I'd go home at night and cry because, you know, I had to do this. How did you internalize that emotionally? What you, what you went through your, your, this is your first job right out of getting your master's degree. And you have to do this in, in arguably the worst economy in, in a generation. And you're having to make these things. Take me through the emotions behind what you, what you dealt with day to day. Yeah. Well, what I didn't realize at the time is that I'm an empath. Uh, and that, you know, one of my gifts is that I can connect people with people emotionally at a fairly deep level. And I remember feeling so heavy for months on end because of that. You know, when you're sitting in a meeting with someone and you basically have to say, well, you know, the business isn't doing very well and thus you happen to be on a list. And let's all be kind of be honest with ourselves, an arbitrary list of who goes and who stays. And it took its toll on me. And at the time I couldn't figure out why, but it's because I connect with people and emotionally and in those meetings I would take it on and I don't remember coming home and crying I do remember feeling angry and feeling hurt and as I reflect back on that experience one that was my own emotion but I I now know it was all their emotion as well and it was it was really tough well, and, and I'm glad, and thank you for being transparent there, because again, that that is an obstacle. And we talk about on the podcast, define your biggest obstacle. Tell me the lesson you learned from it. And, and, and you're smack dab in the middle of this terrible economic, you know, this terrible economics, and you're the one having to tell people your life's affected and things like that. How did you move forward from that? How did you how did you move forward from those feelings of anger and being hurt and things like that because of your deep desire to connect with people in powerful ways? Yeah. So I don't know that as I think back on, I don't know that I ever moved on from that emotionally until a couple of years ago. And you know, I, I mentioned earlier that part of my story was feeling anger and resentment and annoyance and judgment. And I think part of that does stem from that very first experience that I had. Remember, that was my first job. So it was kind of like, wait, is this what corporate America is really like? You know, are, are these the things that really go on? And 
I carry that with me un, unbeknownst to me, um, not having fully worked through it. And it wasn't until I embarked on my own coaching and then went through my own coaching program that I realized I was holding on to that emotion and fighting my true calling of supporting people in a different way, right? I, felt I, was, I was translating my work in HR to, hey, here's how I'm helping people, but it wasn't in the way that I am innately designed to do. And that's what coaching helped me uncover. And that's when I was finally capable because I knew I could release it. And that's, you know, that's so important to understand. I love what you said there. I loved what coaching, what I uncovered through coaching. Because you had been coached all your, all of your uh, adolescent life. From 5 to 22, you were constantly coached as a competitive swimmer. What were some of the things that you took from being coached to coaching? Meet the person where they are. That is my biggest takeaway. The, I, I mean, I've had, from a, from a swimming standpoint, I've had probably 30 to 40, if I were to count them all, 30 to 40 different coaches. The two that stand out in my mind are the two who knew me as a person. They knew what drove me. They knew what was going to upset me. And they kind of used those in very strategic ways in order to get the most out of me. And so that's what I carry over into my coaching is meet the person where they are and most importantly, without judgment. Take me through, and, and I know I alluded to it a moment ago, take me through the biggest obstacle. And you can use your coaching, your coaching career business if you want to, or, or if there's something else you want to talk about. But take me through the, one of the biggest obstacles that you faced and, and how you overcame it and the lesson you learned from it. Yeah. So I would say the biggest obstacle for me was about a year before I got into coaching and went through my coaching program. I was in a, an HR position that just, in, in one word, was miserable. Um, from ineffective leaders to a very toxic work environment it was probably the most challenging position I've ever held. And personally, I didn't feel supported by any member of the team nor the organization as a whole. And I felt as if I was an island among myself trying to fight for relevance, for lack of a better word, and, and any sort of kind of personal power that existed. Uh, I went through four bosses in the amount of nine months. And as an HR leader, that's extremely difficult because you're there trying to be the voice of the business and you yourself are going through so much change and tumultuous turnover that, you know, I had to find the balance between, hey, happy face, this is what the business is going through and some very personal, oh crap moments of, you know, what does this really mean for me? Yeah. And the, the final boss that I had, um, he just was not a pleasant human being. 
and um, uh, a sort of manipulative kind of person. And for me, manipulation is a very hard environment to be in. You know, I'd much it should rather be for everybody. It should it really should be for everybody. There, there's no place for manipulation in business or life. Right. And for me, it was that, oh my goodness, who's going to show up today or, or kind of what conversation am I going to be a part of that I've got to logically try to maneuver my way through or get out of. And, you know, I went through my coaching certification during that same time. And when I was done, I had gotten to the point of, I physically can no longer work in this environment anymore. And I left and that's when I left to start my coaching business. And there was a number of different lessons that I took from that. And the number one being almost reinforcing, meet people where they are and make a genuine effort to connect with them, to understand what they bring to the table and how they contribute to the broader sense of the community, the organization, your, your personal relationship with them and meet them without judgment. Wow. I, I would say that 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 would also piggyback to your biggest piece of intentional encouragement. But I feel like there's something else there that you want to encourage people with. So the floor is yours for the last couple of minutes. What's your biggest piece of yeah. intentional encouragement? And I love that you have this, this um, saying about it. And there, your dreams don't have an expiration date. Meaning, you know, you may start running after something and it may not go as you plan, but you're the one who gets to decide whether it comes to fruition or it doesn't. There's no one else around you to tell you whether you can or you can't. Um, and if you feel that your dream has expired, you know, simply kind of take a break, regroup, step up and start over. Only you get to decide whether your dreams come true or not. And believe me, you have everything inside of you to bring your dreams to life. You may not feel like it at every moment, but you absolutely have everything inside of you. Wow. As a Bengals fan, I dream that one day we'll be in the Super Bowl. <laughs> I'm right there with you. Yes. We'll, we'll go back to 88 and 89, but not lose this time. Maybe our dream doesn't have an expiration date. Yeah. I was a junior in high school the last time the Bengals were in a Super Bowl. So, yeah, it's. It's cool. Um, Lauren, tell folks how they can get connected with you. Uh, obviously, your, your website, unlimitedleader.com, but tell folks how they can get connected with you. Yeah, so I am actually very, very active on LinkedIn. I have some presence on Facebook and Instagram, but where I really intentionally connect with others is through LinkedIn. So you can find me under Lauren Ammon, um, and I'll pop right up. You'll see my sleeve of tattoos, and you'll know that's me. <laughs> I don't have a sleeve of tattoos. I'm getting wrinkles in places that tattoos wouldn't look very nice. So, yeah. Uh, Lauren Ammon, A-M-M-O-N. Mm -hmm. Connect with her on LinkedIn. Um, I will not give you her cell phone number, so don't <laughs> ask. But, uh, but connect with her on her social media platforms. This was so much fun. You and I have interacted uh, a bunch on, on LinkedIn. We never ha have had, not had a chance to face-to-face to, to -face interact. Right. I can't wait to send, to come to Cincinnati and, and see you face-to-face -face when all this is over with. But connect with her, unlimitedleader.com, and connect with her on her other social media platforms. Lauren Ammon, what a great conversation. 
I have so enjoyed it. Thank you for joining me today on the Intentional Encourager podcast. Thank you so much, Brian. Appreciate it. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Meads. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ who provides intentional encouragement every day through his word. And until next time, remember, everyone, everywhere, at any time, and any place can be 